back in the fur shed for episode 330 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, trappingtoday.com. Thank you for being here and listening. It is uh, summertime, so it's not even close to the trapping season, but I know there's a lot of you diehards that uh, are really into trapping no matter what month of the year, and there's a couple hundred of you downloading uh, these episodes within uh, a week of me putting them up there. So I appreciate that. That's pretty awesome. I like to keep growing the podcast and helping people out. So in tonight's episode, we are going to talk about two main topics. We're going to discuss uh, drumming fur or tumbling fur. And then we'll go into a topic about the social issues around trapping and public perception. Uh, more of a a philosophical type discussion and a um, a discussion about how we as trappers um, present our image to the rest of the public. But for starters, let's talk about drumming. Let's talk about tumbling. This is a really practical issue. Get a lot of questions about it. <clears throat> a lot of people are curious. And uh, Wesley sent in this question about tumbling and in or drumming. Wanted to understand. Uh, a little bit, get a little more information about it. So, uh, anyway, um, I will uh, lay out what I what I know about it, and we'll go from there. So, uh, probably most of you that if you send fur to North American Fur Auctions or Fur Harvesters Auctions, you notice that on a lot of the pelts that you sell, there's a drumming fee, and the drumming fee is. Uh, it's it's usually about a dollar a pelt and it's only applied to the long hair pelts so your coyote bobcat lynx um, <clears throat> fox those type of pelts they'll they'll charge you a dollar and they'll they'll drum they'll they'll tumble them so what is that what's that all about why do they do that basically um, you almost have to have if you don't request not to have them drum they're going to do them no matter what and deduct that out of your check so it's obviously uh, they consider it pretty important to the value of the fur <clears throat> so a lot of people just kind of brush it off ah, whatever that's just what they do um, but what is that and and what does it mean and what does it do to your fur it's kind of interesting and something that a lot of people don't uh, don't know about uh, my other than the NAFA and fur harvesters thing my only exposure to drumming was I was at a fur auction somewhere out west I think it was Montana and there was a guy named Dirk Miller from Wyoming who had a, a fur drum or a tumbler and he went to uh, some of the the fur auctions uh, in the general area and he would charge a fee to drum your coyotes or your other furs um, if you wanted that done and I think it was it, it was probably somewhere around a dollar a piece as, as well. And I thought it was cool, and I saw some people paid for it. Some people didn't do it. And uh, I just, I guess I didn't completely understand the full the full value or, or exactly whether or not it was actually worth paying to get those furs tumbled. So, what I'm finding the more I'm looking into it is uh, if you're really if you don't really care and you just you know whatever you get for, for your fur is what you get um, and if it's a low value animal anyway 
probably it doesn't really make a huge difference uh, as far as whether you should have your fur drummed or not. If you have high quality fur and you're really interested in getting the maximum value, uh, drumming makes a huge, huge difference uh, in the quality of that fur. And, and that can vary a lot as well depending on what the conditions are in your trap line, how, how uh, the fur is treated when you prepare it, and uh, how dirty it is. You know, if, um, if we if you're in an area where you get a lot of rain during the trapping season and you're trapping in mud and you got coons that are near the water anyway they're just a complete mess um they can just be real nasty to work with you gotta wash them all anyway uh drumming can help there if you have uh you, you know you trap uh say martin in an area with a lot of uh say a lot of fir spruce fir forest and pine you have potential to get a lot of sap in the fur and that sap uh, hardens up and it makes little balls in the fur and it, it's uh, it's real nasty uh, so drumming can can really help there as well so there's if you have just perfect fur uh, dry clean and everything then then probably not a big deal but let's get into the the whole um, process of drumming so you get a better understanding of of what it actually does so Drumming fur or tumbling fur, I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably because they're basically the same thing. Uh, basically, all it is is you're taking your fur and you're putting it in a drum or a container and you're spinning it around in a circle with a medium that's going through the fur and is cleaning it. Um, basically just picture uh, a large drum uh, that's spinning and the fur is inside it and the fur is coming up the side of the one side of the drum and dropping back down and just continue to tumble just like clothes in a dryer basically that spinning and tumbling action it with a medium that's there to clean the fur is what gets that that fur nice and clean and shiny and and looking much much better so the uh, very uh, very basic what the drumming does is it cleans the pelt very very simple um, it'll clean up the pelt it'll separate the hairs you know a lot of times you get hairs that's matted together it'll separate them out it'll fluff them up it'll shine them and clean it'll help clean burrs and sap and and mud and dirt out of that fur so basically it just makes your fur look much better and I've seen uh, a lot of pictures online of guys that have have done their own tumbling and it really is like night and day the difference in in the quality of the fur when it goes in and when it comes out of the tumbler of course there's a lot of variables that can be affected by that but uh, in in general if, if you do it right it's a it's a huge huge improvement uh, one of the examples uh, that I can think of is if if you have a coyote pelt that's going to auction at NAFA and you've got uh, a burr or two in the pelt or you say you've got uh, it rubbed up against a fir tree and it's got a little bit of gum or spruce gum sort of sticky sap um, in one part of the hide if that runs across the table at NAFA they're going to look at that and they're going to see that there and if the the person that's grading that fur if they see that they're going to look at it and 
and probably downgrade that pelt um, and put it in in a lower grade uh, because they really they don't know exactly the extent to which that is going to um, affect the quality of the pelt when that's taken out. So what this does is is it removes those uh, just one example it removes the option of for a grader to downgrade your pelt it gives them less reasons to downgrade a pelt and for a buyer it makes a pelt look much better um, uh, it's fluffy it's shiny it's clean and and that just makes a it superficially makes a big difference and and uh, <clears throat> in in a lot of cases a buyer looks at that and 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 it help can help make the decision that this guy has a good uh, quality group of furs and and I'm going to pay a little more for him because he obviously takes good care of them and uh, if they look this good on the outside then they what I'm not seeing is probably taking well taken care of as well. So that's the benefit of drumming. Now, um, as far as an actual financial benefit, uh, it's really hard to know for sure. Some guys actually say they see a 10 to 15 percent increase in prices on um, on furs that are drummed compared to furs that are not drummed. So uh, that if that's the case, that's a huge difference, and to me, that's that's well worth drumming for large value items. Now, if it's a five dollar coon, it costs you a dollar. To, to drum it, uh, for instance, which you in most cases you're not going to be drumming coon anyway. But uh, <clears throat> if if that if let's say it's a it's a ten dollar coyote and it costs you a dollar to drum it, well, a ten percent increase on ten dollars is a buck, so you're breaking even, right? So in that case, it might not be a big deal. But if you're dealing with ninety dollar coyotes and you have a ten percent increase, of, you know, a, a nine dollar increase in your average. Uh, that is a huge return on investment for those uh, taking care of those pelts. So drumming is uh, is pretty uh, it, it, now that 10 to 15 percent. That's a couple different people making that observation. Uh, I don't know that there's been any studies on that uh, on the exact numbers. Maybe NAFA has done some work on that <clears throat> internally. Uh, they obviously think it's at least worth a dollar on on long-haired items. So. Um, so that that may be um, uh, that's probably that number may or may not be completely accurate for all pelts, but it's a good starting point. So um, I guess uh, there's a few different things to talk about. But first thing I want to do maybe is talk about what the drum is, what it looks like, and uh, how it actually works. <clears throat> So the drum is is a round sort of cylinder. Um, it is it is like it's basically like a dryer drum um, or a, a, a cement mixer container. You know, just think of a, a cylinder like that that spins. Uh, but it is usually around four to six feet in diameter, and it's up on. Uh, a spindle and supported on either side and it's typically typically has a motor that spins it and you have a door to put the furs in and the furs <clears throat> spin around uh, for a period of time the the furs that go in there are, are you're not just putting fur in there so you have you have the furs and then you're gonna have a cleaning a medium 
in there that's going to work through the furs to, to clean them and to do that whole, you know, the whole idea of, of uh, parting the hairs out, separating them out, fluffing things up, shining, cleaning dirt and mud and everything. <clears throat> For the most part, what that medium is going to be is uh, corn grit, which is ground up corn cobs, sawdust, or a combination of those two things with an added conditioner. And the conditioner is usually going to be a degreaser. Uh, you, Some people use uh, sort of home products that they, they believe work pretty well. Uh, but there are products that you can buy that are specifically um, used for this. And I should point out that uh, Drumming or tumbling is not just something in the fur business. You know, <clears throat> it's fur auctions, uh, large volume trappers, hobby trappers that want to do it, uh, fur farms that, that sell for pelts. Uh, but it also is a pretty big deal in the taxidermy uh, industry uh, for people that are, that are tumbling hides uh, to clean them out. And also, uh, some people use it in the tanning process to try and loosen up and, and uh, condition those those hides uh, while that they're tanning. So it, it's used in taxidermy as well, uh, and and that's why you can actually go and, and buy drums uh, or tumblers online. You can buy these products uh, to, to con for conditioners to put in them. So the conditioner, the probably the most common one is called Melby. M-E-L-B-Y, fur conditioner. That one you can find at Minnesota Trapline Products. And the, the Melby fur conditioner is very simple to use. You can use it in medium in a tumbler. You can also just spray it on to parts of the fur and, and run a comb through it, and it, it'll help clean things up. So it's a, it's a really good product for uh, degreasing, shining, and, and just overall generally cleaning up uh, fur. The other product that I know of is called Everglaze and that does a very similar thing. It, uh, it, it cleans up, restores natural oils, adds color depth and shine to the fur, it cleans it up, it, it glazes it with this, this solution. And basically what you do when you're using a tumbler, you're gonna have your corn grit and your sawdust, some people don't like sawdust, some do. Some only use softwood, some only use hardwood. Um, but you're gonna mix that in, whatever proportion you decide, and you're gonna mix your conditioner in with that. And in some products, you're gonna have to add some water to that and with the conditioner and mix it in with the medium. Uh, probably run the tumbler a little bit, just mix it up, make sure it's good consistency and it's well mixed and then you add the fur in. Once you have your fur and your medium in the tumbler, uh, you start. You just start tumbling. It's very simple. And uh, this is where a lot of the details come into play as to how effective the tumbling process is going to be. So you, if you're, you're running the tumbler too fast, it, there, so there's a certain rotation per minute that, that you want to run uh, in order to effectively tumble the fur. And, and what you want to do is 
you want that fur to ride up the the edge, the side of the tumbler, and you're going to have baffles on this, just like a dryer has baffles. Usually you're going to have like three baffles. Those are basically just strips that stick out from the inside of the cylinder, and it helps pick the fur up and get it up towards the top as the thing is spinning. And so it's going to pick up the fur, and you want the fur to get to a certain height to where it can drop down onto the medium, um, and drop with some of the medium, and it allows that mixing action and that dropping is uh, uh, the speed at which it drops and, and the distance that it drops is going to create that uh, consistent impact with the medium that cleans the fur. If you're spinning too fast, as you can imagine, the, the fur can just ride all the way on the outside, all the way around in a complete rotation without dropping down. And if you're spinning too slow, uh, the fur will not get picked up high enough and it'll just kind of tumble right at the bottom of the tumbler and never get high enough to really drop and create that impact with the medium. So getting it right it takes a little bit of trial and error. The A lot of guys um, throw out <clears throat> what they like for speeds and it, it's going to depend on if you're tumbling muskrats versus if you're tumbling coyotes. It's, you know, uh, <clears throat> Some are going to ride differently based on the size of the fur. And the other thing is, of course, the, the diameter of the tumbler, the size of your paddles or your baffles, and so on. But generally, about 10 to 20, 10 to 30 rotations per minute is what most guys try to achieve. And as you can imagine, some of these tumblers uh, are really small, 2, 3 feet diameter, and some are 5, 6 feet diameter. So... Uh, a rotation per minute is going to be different uh, based on that uh, size of that that cylinder. But hopefully you get the picture. Um, you're ba basically just tumbling around fur in that medium. You do not want to add heat. So that's why uh, just putting fur in a dryer with some stuff is not, not really going to work out very well. Uh, heat can Excessive heat can damage the fur, so you don't want to do that. So it's basically just action impact with, with that medium. So let's say you want to get a tumbler. Um, I I don't have a, need, a desire to get a tumbler. Well, I'd love to have one, but I just don't have room. These things take a lot of space. So if you're considering getting one, you pretty much have to have a dedicated space for it. You can't just fold it up and put it away like a lot of things in a closet. It's going to be a pretty big uh, tool, so you're going to have to have the room for it. So So think about that. But if you want one, you know, sometimes you can find them used from old fur farms. Uh, they they were pretty popular in the fur farming industry. I'm sure you can still buy them uh, from f whatever fur farm suppliers may be out there. Uh, but but they're, they aren't really readily available all the time because that's a really small market. However, uh, you can buy some tumblers that are made for the taxidermy industry that are generally quite small but uh, they they can do the trick and, and they're pretty well handmade and they're pretty expensive but uh, there's a couple Van Dyke's taxidermy sells a bunch of them and McKenzie's sells a bunch of them and they they range from like eight to eleven or twelve hundred dollars 
And the ones they're making are mainly are usually like 35 to 55 gallon plastic drums. And it's basically just the drum on, sitting on a frame with a motor that's uh, spinning that drum and an opening in the drum. So it really isn't much. There's a guy, uh, Stalker Fabrications, S-T-A-L-K-E-R. He's a trapper in New York. I th want to say Tom Stalker maybe. And he makes them and sells them on his website. So you might check that out. I don't know what the price is, what he wants for them. But it's something to look into. But if you want to build one, you get on Google and just search fur dr drumming or fur tumbler or building fur tumbler. And you're going to find a bunch of different uh, pictures and descriptions of guys that have built them on different trapping forums. And they show how they built them step by step on some in some cases. And a lot of really neat pictures, a lot of helpful information there. So if you want to build one, you can get it done. A few different uh, things that people use. Uh, some people do use old dryers. Uh, old dryer can work pretty good, but no heat. So, um, and a lot of guys caution against using them indoors uh, because the dust from the medium can cause a fire hazard. So you want to do it uh, somewhere that's safe and keep it clean and what you gotta do is you gotta convert the dryer uh, basically you take you unhook the heating element and you rewire the dryer because the dryer is in 220 volt you uh, unhook the heating element and you just run the motor that spins the dryer is actually 110 so you can run that rewire it don't ask me exactly how not good with electricity but you can rewire that several guys have done it to a 110 plug so you can just plug that thing in and it'll spin. So that's one way. Um, most guys are making their own drums either out of plywood which um, I've seen some pretty neat ones out of plywood and they're or they're making them out of uh, you know plastic or uh, a steel uh, barrel. And then they're taking uh, used motors, electric motors or and or uh, pulleys and hooking them up with belts and trying to get the gears right to get their speed and make sure the the motor's powerful enough and running the right speed and everything and just kind of piecing things together a lot of you know of course a lot of us in the trapping industry are tinkerers so there's a lot of that going on and seen some pretty neat products one other thing that I should, probably should have discussed earlier is some guys talk about having a shaker so when you're tumbling this fur in the medium and you get done, um, usually you're going to tumble for about, on average, probably about 15 minutes. You don't want to overdo it, but you don't want to underdo it. F 10 to 20 minutes seems to be about right. When you get it done, you're going to pull that fur out of the tumbler and it's going to be looking great, but it's going to have a lot of corn grit, sawdust, whatever you use as a medium in the fur. And you've got to clean that out. In fact, NAFA is not too excited about guys tumbling their own fur because of the sawdust and stuff that's left in it. So you got to clean it out. Um, a lot of guys do it. They'll shake the fur. They shake it just by hand really hard, um, knock it a few times, run a brush through it. Seems to, to get most everything out pretty good. So that works. Um, 
I'm guessing a guy could probably use a air compressor hose in and uh, put some air on it to clean it out as well. Um, but when mostly when guys refer to a shaker, uh, what they're talking about is as part of that drum, there's a section in the drum. Sometimes it's side by side. There's a section of drum and then a section of shaker. Or they'll have a panel that they can pull out when they're done drumming and they want to shake it. And what this does, basically it's just a panel or a whole section of that drum that is wire mesh. And you spin the fur around with the medium over that wire mesh. And as things move around, the medium all drops out through that wire mesh and gets cleaned off of the fur while it's tumbling or while it's shaking, if you will. So that's a really important part. It makes things, if you don't want to do all that by hand, it makes things much, much easier. So that's an important thing to consider. Uh, but you can make your own tumbler for a tumbler if you have a little bit of experience and, and you like to tinker with stuff like that. And you could probably have somebody make one for you if you're interested in that as well and use some of the ideas from guys on Trapper Man and other forums that uh, have been been putting these together. So let's say you have a tumbler and you want to use that in your trap line. You bring some furs in. When do you tumble them? How many times do you tumble them? Uh, at what stage do you tumble them? How does that all work out? A lot of guys are confused by that and for good reason. There really is no hard and fast rule. Uh, same thing with which furs do I tumble? There's not really a, a good solid rule or equation for that. It's really a lot of personal preference on how you want to handle your fur and what you see as a benefit from tumbling. If you don't have a tumbler, you got to pay for it to be done, or you have one that's really small and it takes a lot of time, you know, that's going to factor in. If you got a nice one that's really big and it's really convenient, maybe you want to tumble more often. So I've actually heard of guys putting animals in their hole to tumble, but uh, that's not really very common. So starting off with the, the whole NAFA thing, what what they tumble and when they tumble or, or drum, they will drum long-haired fur. That's the most valuable, like uh, coyote fox, bobcat, and a few others. And they will do that when they receive the fur that has been skinned, stretched, fleshed, stretched, and dried. It's raw fur, so they'll, they will tumble raw fur. <clears throat> they will not tumble short fur or fur that is skinned uh, fur in. So they do not tumble any coons. They don't tumble any muskrats. They don't tumble beaver or, or any of that. The reason for that, well, the, the benefit of tumbling uh, apparently is not worth the the effort so some of it you know if you think about what tumbling does a lot of it's cosmetic right and if you're if you're trying to make the fur really nice I mean it's a really tough thing to navigate and understand because because part of it I think about like okay why am I if I if this fur Go if someone's gonna buy this fur and tan, get it tanned. Th this is gonna be cleaned at that point anyway. So why 
are why do they pay any extra money if the fur looks good? And uh, that's partly true, so they're not going to pay a huge premium for it necessarily. Um, but but they it does obviously make a difference, like we we talked about. So it's just trying to navigate and understand. Okay, how much is that difference, and and is it worth it? If if you've got coons that are fur in, skinned and stretched and dried and ready to go, I really don't see the benefit of tumbling. Um, so so that's probably not going to be something that happens very often. Where the real benefit is of tumbling these furs that NAFA will not tumble is earlier on in the process. That is when you bring the animals in and you skin them out and then you got to clean them. This is very common with raccoons, a, a little bit with muskrats, uh, very common uh, common with coyotes, um, and in some other furs. Uh, they coons, especially coons, skunks. They can be really dirty. Uh, fox and coyotes can be really dirty as well when they come in from the trap line depending on your conditions that time of year a lot of times it rains they get mud caked all over the fur so you take them in you skin them out and at that point you you can't even flesh a lot of times they're so muddy you can't flesh them for fear of tearing the pelts up uh, they're just a mess and so a lot of guys will run their coons if they do high volume coons they'll run them through a washing machine and with detergent and, and wash the pelt out but People who have tumblers will mix in this medium corn grit and, and conditioner and sawdust, run them through without washing them, and they come out with a pelt that's just as nice as if it was washed. They don't have to dry it out because it's already pretty dry. The dirt and mud is all cleaned off of it, and the fur is shiny and just looks incredibly good. So that can be can be an alternative to washing. But a lot of people will still wash their coon pelts, then they'll hang them up to dry, and then they'll run them through the tumbler. So uh, it's really a matter of preference. But basically that, that stage is where they find a real benefit to, to cleaning those pelts. Now when that thing's all finished up, and it's fur in, and the buyer's looking at it, probably, you know, they're not going to know exactly what's going on all the way up inside that pelt. But they're going to see, you know, you're going to leave a little inspection window on those, uh, the coons and the otters. And they're going to see a little bit of that fur and they're going to see it shine and they're going to see how clean it is. And that may make a difference. Um, so, and, and the other thing is if you, if they, right after skinning, if you put, run those furs through tumbler, uh, the medium, there's some of the medium the sawdust and grit is going to attach to the flesh and that can make freeze your fleshing too. Uh, some people, after flushing, will run them through a tumbler a little bit. Uh, helps dry off uh, the grease, suck up some of the grease, and it improves the drying time on the coon as well. So that's that's really where the benefit is to furs that are otherwise not going to be drummed. Uh, you can improve, you can really improve them by doing that earlier in the process. And beavers the same way. If you're if you're trapping beavers in open water and, and you got muddy conditions. You can improve them. Uh, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to pay a dollar to drum my beavers um, it, when they're selling for nine, ten dollars a piece. Uh, 
But if I had a drum laying here and I skinned up uh, half a dozen beavers or four or five, three, four or five beavers, and I had a little bit of time and I was working on something else, and all I had to do is flip the switch and have that thing start turning and clean them up, you know, maybe it'd be worth it. So I could see the benefit there. For people who who uh, really want good, high quality, clean, cleaned up fur, and want to make things more convenient in that cleaning process, uh, that's really uh, where where having a a tumbler can can provide huge benefits. And of course, the other thing that you can do is the if you want to save that drumming fee from NAFA and do your own drumming. You can run them through your own tumbler, and on the tags when you ship to NAFA, you can put "do not do not drum," uh, and they, as far as I know, they will honor that request and they will not drum those furs, and you won't be charged the one dollar a pelt fee. So, anyway, that is uh, an overview of fur tumbling or drumming. I hope that answered all your questions, Wesley, and hopefully anybody else that's that was interested in that topic so uh, so that's pretty neat um, I don't like I said I don't have a tumbler if you guys if anybody has one I'd love to hear how much uh, you enjoy using it and and what benefits you see from it uh, I think I think they are pretty cool and and if someone close by had one maybe I'd I would uh, I'd be using it and and uh, seeing how it improves the quality of my fur because from the few pictures I've seen it it's like night and day the the difference in in how good that fur looks after it comes out of there. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and get into uh, trapping uh, attitudes towards trapping in general public and how we as trappers are perceived because it's an important issue and I hope that uh, I just stumbled across this article a few weeks ago and I mentioned I was going to bring it up on the podcast and uh, finally getting around to it now. But there was an article or, or editorial by an anti-trapper uh, here in our great state of Maine that was really critical of this responsive management survey and tried to you know bring put it in a really negative light about how um, wildlife departments in different states are are trying to brainwash people that trapping is good and so on. So. Uh, it, it really struck a nerve with me, and I, I looked into it, and I read through the, the article, and, and it's really interesting information. And so so basically, this responsive management is a research group that does uh, studies and surveys uh, for, I think they've done them for all 50 states in the U.S. Um, it's a guy that's... Uh, Mark Duda is a former biologist who was really interested in this stuff and started his own company, um, switched careers, and and decided to get into this whole public uh, attitudes towards fish and wildlife. And they have put together a lot of different reports and different information. And as part of this, they have found, uh, they've dug pretty deep into public attitudes about trapping. And I think this is really important because this is information that the anti-trapping community is very aware of and they've used uh, to influence public viewpoints and to uh, get 
laws passed to ban trapping and ban certain types of trapping in different places. So this is something that can make us very vulnerable, but at the same time, understanding these issues can help us as trappers more effectively communicate our message. Because if um, if average Joe Trapper is going down the road and runs into a uh, a person, uh, say a landowner that that lives nearby, and and they say the wrong things, it can really put trapping in a bad light. And a lot of times, there are things that we just don't think about. And and you know, maybe if you're in a rural area with farming and ranching communities around you, it's not as much of an issue because people grew up around trapping and and hunting and fishing, and they get it more. Uh, but even there, there's a lot of people that just don't understand trapping. So I wanted to read a little bit about this study, um, <clears throat> this public opinion on wildlife as it refers, as it relates to trapping, just to give a little bit of a better understanding um, of, of what, what things trigger people and, and how they feel about trapping and how maybe we can help influence this to put trapping in, in a more positive light. So, uh, responsive management, trapping and trappers. The first issue affecting public attitudes toward trapping is that the public cares deeply about America's wildlife resources. Responsive management research shows that many people are concerned about the impact trapping may have on wildlife resources. And there's a direct statistical positive correlation between opposition to trapping and agreement with this statement. And here's the statement. Even though trapping is regulated by the state, Regulated trapping can still cause wildlife species to become endangered. So this is where it's just blew my mind thinking about this. That because I always assume that uh, something that's state regulated, of course, being a trapper, we are so overregulated, it's unbelievable. Uh, at times, it just makes your head spin. But the majority of the public actually thinks that that regulation is not adequately protecting wildlife. Uh, one of the examples that I see in this is people uh, that are against trapping, they can't get it over the fact that there aren't a lot of limits, like bag limits on fur bears like there are with, uh, with say, fish or deer. And, of course, we know as trappers there are so few trappers around that bag limits are not necessary. And, in fact, we need probably need more harvest of a lot of our fur bear species. Uh, and where they are necessary, they are implemented. However, uh, this issue just doesn't seem to be getting through to people, and people do not recognize the fact that uh, that management is is actually protecting fur bear populations. So, so we need to communicate that better. So it says, uh, this is why the terms regulated and legal trapping are so important when discussing trapping, and why the use of these terms can alter public opinion on trapping so dramatically. The public wants to be assured that trapping will not harm or endanger America's wildlife resources. State natural resource and outdoor recreation organizations play a key role in allaying the fears of Americans toward the perceived harm caused by trapping. State agencies are seen as the most credible source for information on trapping for many reasons, but one of the more important reasons is that they're responsible for protection of wildlife and natural resources. So, let's get into reasons for trapping that garner public support. <clears throat> so here it says, the second key to understanding 
public attitudes toward trapping is that the public takes seriously the harvesting of animals. Harvesting animals is a value-laden activity, and any motivation for killing animals that's not seen as legitimate is rejected. Responsive management survey results indicate major swings in public approval of trapping based on different reasons for trapping. The overall legitimacy of trapping is not necessarily the determining factor in support of trapping as much as the specific reason for trapping. This is where people's feelings get in the way of things. And, and this, this really bothered me to, to have to read a lot of this. And, and um, it's very, it, it is quite frustrating, but this is how people feel. So trapping that ultimately helps wildlife, like for uh, relocation or part of a biological study, and trapping to protect human health or property, like trapping uh, for, f for food, trapping to reduce crop damage, trapping to reduce human property damage, are considered acceptable. They're considered acceptable to the public. While trapping for economic or recreational reasons, um, i.e. trapping to make money, trapping for fur clothing, trapping for recreation, are considered unacceptable to a large percentage of the public. And, and my head spins thinking about this, and, and it, it, does, it does bother me, and it, I know it bothers a lot of us as trappers, well, some of us, that, that people consider it unethical, uh, you know, what we're doing. Um, <clears throat> and to me, if, if an animal is being harvested in a responsible manner, um, and it's done legally, and it's done uh, ethically in the most humane way possible, the animal's dead, and and I've discussed this before in the podcast. What what does it matter? Uh, why it was killed? The fact is, it was killed, right? And and it's being done in a responsible way, and it's being done in a way that promotes the health of overall populations. Um, but people put place value judgments on your motivation for doing things. It, for some reason, they they think certain killings of animals are justified, while while others are not. So it's, it's a difficult road to navigate and, and we're not going to change public opinion overnight and we may never change public opinion. So uh, I, don't, I don't know how to tackle this as trappers other than number one, to get more people who are open-minded exposed to what we do and understand why we do it. Recreation for them is a seems to me is a much different type of recreation that we're talking about when we talk about recreational trapping. Uh, there, there's a deeper meaning to that term. And that's not the same term as going out and swimming, uh, going out and, and mountain biking, for instance. Um, it, it's very different. So getting those people exposed to what we do and understanding that, that this is not just a big game. And also... Uh, tying in those other reasons for trapping, if we understand that people think, well, animal damage control is a legitimate cause for trapping, um, and if it's biological, then it's a legitimate reason for trapping animals, then they're okay with it. So, so when we have the opportunity, I think it's good to tie in the idea that, you know, while I'm out here trapping, I'm also collecting data for a state wildlife management agency. You know, we got to submit the jaw. We get to submit a tooth. We get to provide this information on on where we caught these animals, and some of them might have a tag or a collar on them, and uh, and we help out with a lot of this management. and And I think that 
that can gain us some traction in in view of a lot of members of the public uh, as well as you know I'm helping these landowners out they're really seeing some problems and uh, we're we're helping manage manage those problems that they're having with predators and doing it in the most responsible way possible so so those are those are real keys so now the next section of this article is the importance of information about trapping the third fundamental issue regarding public attitude toward trapping is that the public is highly uninformed about trapping. This is a huge problem. You know, people just don't know what trapping is. They don't know trappers. We're such a small minority, and that's why what we do is always under attack. We're, we're always having to deal with trying to preserve uh, this heritage, this tradition, this way of life. Uh, this economic activity, all these things, we're, we are such a small minority. And the fewer trappers there are, the harder it is to, to continue doing what we're doing. And because of that, uh, in the absence of information on trapping, the public is free to project on trapping whatever image first comes to mind. So they don't know what it is, so they're going to think the worst, the most dramatic. For much of the public, the image of trapping burned into American psyche is of a helpless animal doing anything it can to escape a steel-toothed trap, including chewing off its own leg. And this is where the antis play right into people's emotions and people's ideas about trapping. People want to think that because they don't know any better. And then you see TVs on commercials, commercials on TV, and people talking about this that, and saying that these things are going on when they are not. Uh, but the public believes it. it it's uh, it's a big scam, and that's why when when all these trapping shows came out on TV, it's really been pretty interesting. You had a bunch of shows on reality TV. Most of them are kind of Alaska or Canada centric, uh, Arctic type stuff. But the um, well, F and T's um, F and T's trapping show that they put out. Uh, for a lot of people that were hunters watching, you know, the outdoor channel and stuff, the in sportsman channel, they they that was really cool because it exposed a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't know much about trapping to trapping. But I'm talking the general public when shows like Life Below Zero came out, uh, The Last Alaskans, uh, Yukon Men, they're there have been a bunch of shows. I actually had Trapping in Reality TV. I did an article on that a while back if you search Trapping Today and, and went over a bunch of those shows. Um, they, <clears throat> at first it was like, what are people going to think? This is, you know, I'm nervous watching this because people, anti-trappers are going to latch on to this and everything. The general public's going to gonna think we're trappers are terrible people. I thought it was the you know the coolest show. They were the coolest shows ever. They were actually showing trapping. And you know, honestly, as far everybody that I've talked to that watched those shows, there's been generally a positive reaction to those shows. Because, in my opinion, they were thinking far worse. They were thinking trapping as being such a horrible thing. When they actually saw some real trapping out in the field and they connected with the people who were doing the trapping, um... It wasn't a big deal. They thought, well, that's pretty neat. I can see now why he's doing this. I can see what they're doing and how they're doing it. And and there was less of that sort of anti-trapping sentiment. So it turned out to be a good thing. And I think uh, bringing trapping into the the mainstream media 
world is is probably it's going to do some harm in some cases but if it's done right it can do far more good than than harm so responsive management research has determined that an important underlying cause of the general disapproval of trapping appears to be due to a lack of information <clears throat> there are significant relationships between approval disapproval of trapping and awareness that trapping occurs awareness that's regulated familiarity with the agency responsible for regulating, confidence in the agency, <clears throat> familiarity with trappers, knowledge of beneficial uses of animals, knowledge of methods used to take to make trapping more humane. The more information people possess about these issues, the more likely they are to approve of trapping. <clears throat> so there's the data right there that shows us uh, we need to get our message out more effectively to more people. Another indicator that seems to validate the idea that lack of knowledge is the most prevalent factor in producing low approval of trapping was the revealing finding in a responsive management study conducted in Indiana, Connecticut, and Wisconsin that most people either strongly or moderately agreed that trapping could still cause the species to become extinct, like we mentioned earlier. This indicates the average person does not know what regulation means. It's not enough to say that trapping is regulated. Regulation needs to have a context. People need to know what regulation means, who does it, why it's important, where it's done, and when it's used. People, when uninformed, tend to assign a stereotypical negative image to trapping. Trapping, due to lack of information, is seen in terms of an animal chewing off its leg, and the trappers are regulated to self-serving. The solution is to counteracting to, the solution to counteracting this negative image is to prevent, present trapping as a sanctioned scientific solution. The abstract negative connotations associated with trapping need to be overcome with concrete positive reasons for trapping. The public needs to know that trapping is sanctioned by the state, scientific based on population estimates set by biologists, and a solution, i.e. to a problem like animal damage control. The state sanctioning brings credibility through sponsorship. The use of scientific methods brings credibility through reason. And the presentation of trapping as the solution to a well-defined problem gives trapping a reason for being. So there you go. Um, I hope that uh, brought home a few points. I know a lot of people are, are already aware of those issues and uh, understand why we we need to get our message out as trappers, but just a few things to think about when you're interacting with people about trapping, or if you're nervous to t tell someone that you're a trapper or whatever, you know, just think about those things and uh, how important it is for us to, to get our message out and to explain to people why we're doing what we're doing. And um, we're not just a bunch of redneck hillbillies running around uh, letting they making animals chew their legs off. So, um, I hope that was useful, um, as well as the uh, fur tumbling, fur drumming information, and I hope you guys have a great week. I know this went a little bit long, longer than normal, but I did want to get into that responsive management stuff because it, I've been putting it off for several weeks. So anyway, keep on thinking about trapping, get ready for trapping for the next season, and I appreciate you having along, having you along and share this information, this podcast with other people in the trapping community, and we'll see you next time.